Hey guys, thanks for listening to this message from Soli Church. Our prayer is that this message would be a blessing and resource for you. But no sermon or podcast can ever take the place of being connected to a local church. If you're in or around the Ventura County area, we would love for you to join us. You can find when and where we're meeting by visiting solelychurch.com. S-O-L-I church.com. Rest in Jesus, Christian. As you remain standing, you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For our sermon today, we are stepping aside from the book of Galatians, as you know, for um, the Paschal season. And the Paschal season is going to begin in earnest next Lord's Day. Today, we are uh, going to have one of those uh, solely pastoral uh, sermons. And so, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I'm simply going to read verse 14, which is where we're going to be spending our day today. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. That's the word of the Lord. Our God in heaven, we would ask now that the Lord Jesus would speak from heaven through a servant who is weak at best and certainly insufficient for the moment. But you are not insufficient. You are the sufficient one. All sufficiency, Lord Jesus, is in you. There is no lack in you. You are the fullness of everything. So I just pray today that your word would come to our souls and would work what only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, Life Together, the Christian martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, and I want you to listen closely. Bonhoeffer writes, he who loves his dream of a church community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Let me read that again. He who loves his dream of a church community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. He who loves his dream of what a perfect church is. He who loves his dream of what an ideal church is. He who loves that more than he actually loves the community that Jesus Christ is building right in front of his face, the community that Christ has him or her a part of, if we love the ideal of what we want the church to be more than the actual church that Jesus is building, we become an actual destroyer of the actual church itself. 
And it is here in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 that Paul saves us from this community-destroying danger. You see, it was Paul and a company of bivocational pastors. Hmm. Paul and a company of bivocational pastors who founded the church at Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. That is found in Acts chapter 17, and Jeremy, you can look at it later, okay? But in Acts chapter 17, we find that the apostle Paul and a company of pastors founds the church at Thessalonica, and Paul was only able to be there for around a month. But during that month, the sovereign spirit sunk three deep roots, and we normally don't get that. You normally don't get depth in a short time. But because the sovereign spirit was moving over the church in Thessalonica, the sovereign spirit sunk three deep roots in just a short time in that month that Paul and the company of pastors were there. That first deep root that the sovereign spirit sunk was this. Immediately, the spirit worked a deep familial relationship between the pastors and the congregation at Thessalonica, a deep family relationship immediately grew and deepened during that short time that Paul was there. Look with me at chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8. We see the way that Paul speaks of this church that he only had just about a month with. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul tells them what kind of pastors they were when they were among them. Paul says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So there was this maternal relationship of care that Paul and the company of pastors had for the church at Thessalonica, viewing them as if they had given birth to them because spiritually they had been actually a part of that. But look at verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you. We had such an affection for you, such a desire for your salvation and fullness in Christ. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our very lives, because you had become so very dear to us. Look at what Paul is saying in the short span of just a month. There's this deep relationship that comes to take place between Paul, the company of pastors, and the church at Thessalonica where Paul says, we not only gave you the gospel, you had become so very dear to us that we were willing to give our whole lives away to you. That's how dear you were to us. You not only have the word from us, you have the totality of our lives at your expense. It's all for you. Our lives are yours. And then drop down to verses 11 and 12, Paul moves from the maternal to the fatherly. Verses 11 and 12, Paul says, for you know how like a father. So first in verse 7, he says, we how like a mother. We have this maternal relationship with you. But now he moves over and says, and like a father, verse 11, with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so um, no, notice this personal relationship that is there. We exhorted and encouraged each one of you. 
So immediately there is this bonding of a special relationship between the church at Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul, and the company of pastors that is this deep sinking of familial roots in which Paul viewed the church as children for him to care for and as pastors for those to spend their lives for. So much so that Paul says this down in chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, it was because of suffering that they had to leave. They had to run, literally had to run for their lives. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. But watch this, watch how Paul views this church that he wants to be face to face with again, but he was ripped from, but his heart remains with. Look at what he says, verse 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? What will we as pastors have to say when Jesus comes? Is it not you, the church, for you, are our glory and our joy, Paul says. The very church, you are our glory and our joy. And if you drop down to chapter three, verses eight and nine, we're going to see Paul say this from his pastoral perspective. So goes the people, so goes the heart of the pastor. The pastor himself, his heart will be where his people are. Look at verse eight of chapter three. For now we live, notice the we, we, the company of pastors. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. If you stand fast, we live. But if you don't, we die. Verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Notice this deep abiding relationship of the, the self-giving of the pastors, the receiving of it by the church at Thessalonica, these family bonds that develop so that they become the very glory and joy of the apostle himself and the company of pastors, and that if they are walking in the faith and standing firm, then the pastors truly have life. There is this symbiotic tie between the pastors and the congregation that Paul himself talks about. That's the first deep root. The second deep root that we find here is this deep response to and reception of the Word of God preached that the Thessalonians were gifted by the Spirit. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 5. Chapter 1 and verse 5. I, th these are some of my favorite verses in the Bible that we're going to look at right now because this is the way in which we pray that the Spirit of God would have a church respond to the Word of God. Chapter 1, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
See, that is the prayer of every pastoral ministry, of every pastoral team, that the word of God would not just come in word only, but it would come in the demonstration of the power of the spirit with the full conviction of God's people to have it take over their lives. And he says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. So much so, look at what verse 9 says. Here's the, here's the fruit that the power of the word of God produced in the Thessalonian congregation. Verse 9 of chapter 1. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The power of the word was so great in the demonstration of the power of the spirit that the Thessalonians turned from their false gods and turned in faith to the one living and true God and begin to follow the true God as he is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. There was a transformation of a people under the power of the word of God. So much so that in chapter 2 and verse 13, look with me there, chapter 2 and verse 13, I love this verse. Oh, I love this verse. Chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says, and notice that this is a congregation that Paul's always thanking God for. This is is a congregation that Paul is always thanking God for. In verse 13, he says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that you, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What What a congregation that receives the word of God, not as the word of men, but receives it for what it is, the very word of God, which is actually at work in the believers who hear the word of God. And so we have this deep familial bond of relationship that develops between Paul, the company of pastors in the church at Thessalonica. And then there's a deep response to and transformative reception of the word of God by that congregation. But all of that is in the context of deep suffering, deep Suffering. Turn back to chapter 1 and look at verse 6. This is the context in which they receive the word of God. But it is also the context in which the apostle Paul himself preached the word of God to them. Chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Watch this. For you received the word in much affliction. This was costing them something to receive the word. But notice what was combined with receiving the word in affliction. Also with what only God can do. Right, Pastor John? Only God can do this. Simultaneously have a people receive the word of God in affliction and with great joy in the Holy Spirit. Only God can do that. But that's what God's doing here in this congregation. They are receiving the word of God as the word of God, but it's costing everybody, both preacher and people, to receive the word of God. Look over at 2.14. I'm just trying to set the context for 5.14. Look at 2.14. says this, For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things. 
from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from preaching the word. You see, so they're living, this is not an easy place. Thessalonica is, is not an easy place for the church to grow up. It's a costly place for the church to grow up. And the word is coming in the midst of great and terrible affliction. And yet the Thessalonian church is receiving the word in that very context. As a matter of fact, Paul is so concerned about that. Paul is so concerned about the suffering of this church because he had to leave. He got run out of town. The company of pastors got run out of town. And Paul was concerned that they would cave under the suffering. That they wouldn't be able to stand up under the suffering. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, he says this. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer. I mean, you see the affection he has for these people. When we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind. And so if you're looking for a left behind theology, here it is. All right. Uh, Paul got left behind in Athens alone, um, and we sent Timothy. So they were willing to break up the company of pastors for a little bit of time. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Watch, why? Why did Paul send Timothy when he could bear it no longer and he himself couldn't go? Verse 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. So that you wouldn't be moved away from Christ by the suffering. You wouldn't be moved away from Christ by the afflictions, for you know we were destined for this. We love the predestination part under salvation, but the church has been predestined to suffer as well. It is the destiny of God's people to suffer under the word when God so ordains it for the glory of his name. So verse four, Paul says this, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, just as you know. Verse five, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul sends Timothy to find out the condition of the church, and what he finds out is that they are standing firm. So these three deep roots, this deep familial root, this deep relationship to the Word of God, and this deep suffering produces a church of love. That's what it does. Those three, those three deep roots produces a church that was known both locally and all around the area for its love. Look at chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are all doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers, to do this more and more. You don't need anything written to you about loving, because you love. You are a loving congregation. You are a loving people. These deep roots have produced this loving congregation. As a matter of fact, you not only love those there, you love those, all the brothers throughout all of Macedonia. You have this reputation for this kind of love. And all we can tell you to do is just keep, keep doing it. Keep doing it more and more and more. Keep doing it. So, Soli Church, this is the church to whom Paul writes. 
But for all of this, for all that we have seen so far, this does not mean that the Thessalonian community had arrived at some dream ideal. But rather, the Thessalonian community, like all church communities, is a community of struggling sinners, is a community of faltering saints. Go back to chapter 5 and verse 14. This is where we'll be the rest of the time. Look at the words that Paul uses to describe some in the congregation of this church, some in this family, some in whom the word is doing its work, some in whom are facing suffering. Paul tells us that inside the Thessalonian community, inside the Thessalonian church, there is not this ideal church full of these ideal saints. But rather, Paul says this to the church at Thessalonica, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. You see, Paul says that inside this Thessalonian community, there's going to be those who are a little bit unruly. There are going to be those who are faint-hearted. There are going to be those who are weak. You see, as Eugene Peterson said, listen to this, the church community is an intricate, complex, and inherently messy crew of various personalities, ideas, experiences, gifts, traumas, desires, disappointments, blessing, losses. Living in proximity to and rubbing shoulders in the worship of God. You see, this, the church is complex. The church is intricate. It's inherently messy. It's full of people who bring an entire narrative behind them into the church, and they're meant to be a new humanity with everything that they bring with them, all the struggles, trials, and tears of everything, and we rub shoulders with one another together in the worship of God. And listen to me, church, when it comes to the church and the messiness of the church and the challenge of the church and the challenge of being a church, there are no experts here. None. And church life is not easy. And church life is not simple. It's going to be messy. Church life is going to be messy. And we need an imagination capable of understanding the way God works with the mess. We need an imagination capable of understanding how God works with his beloved mess as we are in the way of Jesus. And so Paul and his company of pastors help us with this. When the word of God is doing its work in the church, we can expect to find unruly people. When the word of God is doing its work in the church, we can expect to find faint-hearted people. When the word of God is doing its work in the church, we can expect to find weak people. We can expect that in the life of the church, as a normal life together, there will be, and sometimes it will be you. I'm not talking about the person on either side of you. If you have an aisle seat, I'm just talking about the person, I'm not talking about the person just on one side of you. There will be times in which you are a little unruly. There will be times in which you are faint-hearted. There will be times in which you are weak, you see. 
This is not a passage about them. This is a passage about us. This is a passage about the we. And there are some brothers and sisters who will have seasons of unruliness, seasons of faint-heartedness, seasons of weakness. Sometimes those seasons will be longer. Sometimes those seasons will be shorter. Sometimes in you they will be longer. Sometimes in you they will be shorter. And what this passage is calling us to is this passage is calling us to recognize that these are the people that we are doing life with. These are the people that we are doing covenant with. These are the people that we are doing membership in the church with. These are the people who, when they find themselves in the unruly times, in the faint-hearted times, in the weak times, they need the body of Christ to go out to them and to dwell in their life in those seasons. At the same time, when you find yourself as one of these people in the unruly time, in the faint-hearted time, in the weak time, that is no time for pride. Because as, as hard as it is for some of us to go out into the lives of other people and get messy, it's difficult for many of us to let other people into our lives to help us when we are the mess. Because we're prideful. That ends at the boundary of the baptismal door of the church. When God places his name on you in the baptismal waters, you are no longer your own. You belong body and soul to another, and that's the totus Christus, Christ and his body, which means you have to be humble enough to receive the help, just as you have to be risky enough to go out and give the help. And there is no one at Soli who is beyond these seasons. No one. And that includes the company of pastors. There is no one who is immune from or has been promised by Jesus that these three seasons of life will never come your way. Paul recognizes that this is simply a part of congregational life. And so he says this, verse 14, and we urge you. He's gonna give four imperatives, he's going to give four commands, they're staccato, they're short, they're pungent, and here's why. Because Paul knows that the Thessalonian church is the kind of church that will hear what he says and they will go and do it. He doesn't need to, he doesn't need to explain each imperative, he doesn't need to go into the depth of them. They can just boom, 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 boom. They have the kind of heart for this because of the wor the, the, what the Word is doing in their congregation. But you'll notice he doesn't start with a command. He starts just with a pastoral urging. He, he comes alongside and says, hey, let me, let me nudge you in this direction. Let me encourage you to be on the lookout for these people. Let me encourage you into the lives of one another in this way. And you'll notice he not only urges them, he says, brothers, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. So it's family time. This is what the family does for the family, you see, Adelphoi. 
I urge you, brothers and sisters. Which means, church, this is the place where these things are welcome. The unruly Christians are welcome here at Soli, just like they were welcome in Thessalonica. The faint-hearted Christians are welcome at Soli, just like they are welcome in Thessalonica. The weak Christians are welcome at Soli, just like they were welcome in Thessalonica. And so let's unfold these a little bit. Paul says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly. I know the ESV has idle there. That's not a very good translation. It has a footnote for disorderly. The NAS has unruly. That's a better translation here. The unruly, listen to me. This is very important that you guys hear this. Admonish the unruly, which means there will be seasons in the life of the church where there will be saints inside the church who go through unruly seasons. Any of you who are parents should already understand this. It's like, hello, right? How many of you have ever said, well, my, my child is going through a season? Guess what? Pastors have children too, and they're you, and we all go through seasons, okay? That's what's going on. We have seasons, okay? And notice here that it's the unruly. Who are the unruly? Well, listen, the unruly are those who just don't have it all together, okay? They just don't have it all together. They just are not lining up with everything. The unruly are the slow to get it. The unruly are those who are kind of out of step with everything. The unruly are those who have much to unlearn and unlearning takes a long time. The unruly are those who not only have much to unlearn, but they have much to learn, okay? Listen, there are just people in the church to whom following Jesus is just not the easiest thing they do. They see the lines, how close can I get? Hey dad, how close to the line can I get without sinning, right? It's just, it's just an unruly chap, right? It just, it, that there are just people who just, they test the boundaries. They push out. They, they, they carry with them certain things that have a proclivity, and maybe it's a seasonal thing, or maybe it's the totality of life. They just are slow to get it. They're pushing the boundaries. They don't line up. They don't keep in step. But notice what Paul says. He doesn't say kick them out. <laughs> he doesn't say don't make a place for them. Certainly, we want them to unlearn the things they need to unlearn. And certainly, we want them to learn the things they need to learn. And certainly, it would be better for them to be less unruly and more in line with the gospel of grace and what it is that God's doing. So, of course, we don't want them to stay there. We have a relationship with the unruly. And Paul says the relationship with the unruly is admonish the unruly. That's the relationship. That word admonish is real simple. It simply means this to bring truth to the mind. Bring truth to the mind. Nuthateo, to confront the mind with truth. Paul says to those that are out of line, to those that don't line up, those that just don't have it together, those that are slow to get it, those that have to unlearn much, and those that have much to learn, admonish them, bring the truth to their mind. 
bring the truth to them. They need the truth to help them along the way. But notice what he says at the end. He says, be patient with them all. So whatever admonishing that's taking place here, it's not impatient admonishment. It's not caustic admonishment. It's not judgmental admonishment. It's not someone sitting on a perfectionistic perch admonishing from the ivory tower, saying if you were just more like me, you wouldn't be so unruly. There's no judgmentalism here. There's no perfectionism here. There is simply one fellow pilgrim on the way of Jesus to another fellow pilgrim on the way of Jesus, and one fellow pilgrim is just having a harder time getting along, and they need truth to help them move along. And so we admonish the unruly. We bring truth to them in love. And we know that God himself takes the truth and accomplishes that truth in the life of the unruly according to his own timetable, not yours and not mine. But we don't withdraw from the unruly. We don't say, well, that's simply the way that they are. It's easier to do that. It's easier to say, you know, it's going to get messy if I get involved with the unruly. It's going to be costly if I get involved with the unruly. I don't want to take the risk of getting involved with the unruly. We don't have that option on the table because Paul tells us to admonish the unruly, which means there will be times in which you do get burned admonishing the unruly. There will times in which you do invest in the life of someone with the admonishment of truth who's unruly, and that relationship will scar you. That relationship sometimes will betray you. Sometimes you will invest in people for a long time, and they will stab you in the back someday. We do not do this to be risk averse. We do this because the glory of Christ and the lives of his people are worth it. And so we admonish the unruly. Secondly, we encourage the faint-hearted. We encourage the faint-hearted. The Greek word here for faint-hearted means the one with a little soul. The person with a little soul, the person who is small-souled. You see, church, there are people here in this congregation at Soli, like there were people in Thessalonica, and right now, life is beating them. There are people to whom they are in a season, and life is just battering them. Wave after wave after wave after wave of battering and smashing and battering and smashing and battering and smashing. And there are some whose souls have been beaten to smallness by life. And these are in danger of giving up. These are in danger of losing heart. These are those who don't know if they have the strength to simply take another step. They're in this room. 
They share life with you. And their, their heart is fainting. Their soul is closing. They're in danger of just handing it in. We don't shame these brothers and sisters because of their faint-heartedness. We don't shame them. We also don't give up on them. And we certainly don't leave them to themselves. We go out to them. This may be long, this may be short, it may be a lifetime. But Paul says this, encourage the faint-hearted. That's what it means. You don't just identify the faint-hearted, you encourage the faint-hearted. And this word here, encourage, is only really used, I think it's used twice. It's a rare word for Paul, and I want you to listen to this because it's important. Because this is not the normal word that Paul uses for encourage, okay? This word means to bring a consoling persuasion, okay? Encourage the faint-hearted. The faint-hearted need persuasion to go on. The faint-hearted need persuasion to keep going. The faint-hearted need persuasion to not give up on doing good, as Paul says in Galatians. The faint-hearted, they need help to not go it alone. They need encouragement to continue to do the next thing, you see. They need a consoling, present encouragement to continue to keep going and to tell them, even if you have a difficult time taking the next step, I will take it with you. Let's turn this into a three-legged race. I will wrap my leg to yours and I will help you take your steps. That's what we do with the faint-hearted. That's what we do with those who are struggling with the battering of life. We encourage them with a consoling persuasion to do the next thing because the battering of life and the waves that they are taking are not the final word in the story. But when that's all someone can see, it's cold comfort to offer, to offer a distant platitude without presence. But it's the right thing to do to offer a consoling encouragement with presence. So we encourage the faint-hearted, we admonish the unruly, and then thirdly, we help the weak. Paul says, we urge you brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. There are seasons in which saints are going to go through weakness. And this weakness is a general word for Paul on purpose because it doesn't simply mean one kind of weakness. We are whole persons. We are not Gnostic in this church. We believe that we are bodies and souls. We are whole people. There will be times in which people are weak spiritually. There will be times in which people are weak morally. 
There will be times in which our brothers and sisters are weak psychologically. There will be times in which our brothers and sisters are weak mentally. There will be times in which our brothers and sisters are weak physically. There will be times in which we are simply surrounded by people who are living in weak days for a variety of reasons, spiritually, morally, psychologically, mentally, or physically, and we don't reject the vulnerable saints. We don't cast the weak aside. Listen, church, the church right now is so dumb. We're so dumb. We're so stinking worldly. We're all about the celebrities and we're all about the powerful and we're all about this and we're all about that and it's so the opposite in God's word. You wanna know who the people are in the church that should be exalted? Are the ones who are carrying the most weakness. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to the church at Corinth. It was all about self-honor and self-glory. Listen to what Paul says. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Is that how we view the church? Oh, you're the weak one, you're indispensable. Is that how we talk? And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated as with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But, but watch this. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. The part that lacks gets the greater honor. Why? so that there's no division in the body, and so that we can all have the same care for one another, so that when one member suffers, all suffer with it. And when one member is honored, all honor with it. You see, we help the weak, you see. We help the weak. We don't shame the weak, we don't, we don't pile on the weakness, we glorify the weakness. We honor it. And Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. He says, help the weak. That word there for help means to cling to and to hold fast to. It means to be present with, face to face with. It's an indwelling help. You go help the weak by indwelling their weakness. Okay. So church, listen to me as I bring this to a close. God has so composed the body at Thessalonica, and God has so composed the body of, at Soli that we're gonna have unruly people. Praise Jesus. We're gonna have faint-hearted people. Thank the Lord. We're gonna have weak people. Honor and glory, baby, honor and glory. We're gonna have those people. And in this church, what that means is that there, some of you are gonna have to go out into the lives of those people and encourage, help, and admonish. Some of you are gonna to have to receive some admonishing. You're gonna to have to receive some help. And you're gonna to have to receive some encouragement. But in all of this, Paul says, be patient with them all. This is hard for me. 
So I want to fix things. I have brothers and sisters in this room who I love. They're hurting. And I want to fix it. I want to fix it now. And I want their suffering to end now. And I want their trial to end now. It's not my call. It's not my call. It's my call to be patient. It's my call to be present. It's our call to be the church. And you know how we're trained to do this? You know how we're trained to go out into the lives of other people and trained to be on the receiving end of the help that comes? We're trained at the table. When we pass the peace with one another, it's the training ground for the life of the church with this. And may solely church be a place where all the unruly and all the weak and all the faint-hearted have the greatest position and place in our hearts and in our honor. Because guess what? You're all going to be there someday. You're all going to be there someday. And I pray that this is a church that has the values of the kingdom uppermost, and they're always going to be upside down to the world. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, take a weak sermon from a weak man and do something with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.